Yeah, I still remember when I uh, walked the 110 miles from the seminary back home. And in the village, uh, there was this turmoil about me as if I was the first person to ever return, when in fact people had been coming back from Ghana and the Ivory Coast and so forth. But the, the one reason why I was creating turmoil was one of the things that my father finally told me one day, that I was in possession of a terminal disease. I thought it was something, uh, cancer or something of that sort. And I found out it was the knowledge of knowing how to read and write. It was shocking to learn that that was a terminal, actually you call it a terminal knowledge. It took me a while to realize that, uh, yeah, indeed, I can't forget how to read and write anymore. Uh, somebody tried to do that. What I came to understand also was that certain type of knowing deletes the opportunity of accessing other areas of knowledge. As if there's a finite uh, space, a knowledge space within us. I wanted to uh, try uh, as clumsily uh, as possible to address the issue that I uh, I would like to call the healing of betrayal. But on second thoughts, I have the feeling that uh, the result of the talk is going to determine the title. And so maybe by the end, when we're all, we're all done, the title will be different. The reason for that is that, uh, again, I still remember this, uh, this statement that uh, my father related to me uh, about the reason why it is important for me not to be in the village. He said something to the effect that uh, hostility always translates behind itself the lurking presence of an unblessed person, which means that uh, a person who is caught in the manner of expressing hatred is a person who is responding to the absence of blessing. And one of the reasons why uh, my grandfather just stayed away from all this modern transformation was because he was worried about the white man's elders. Yeah. Because violence, from an indigenous point of view, comes from the fact that somebody was not blessed. And when you are not blessed, in fact, you're carrying a silent curse within you. Because everybody is entitled to one or the other. And more often than not, when blessing is not explicitly expressed, then curse take the space of blessing. So the problem we're dealing with, at least of anything that I, come to, I came to understand as far as colonialism was concerned, was that the African continent underwent what it did simply because someone either was cursed or was not blessed. The other thing that I came to understand was that a person who is cursed always goes to the house of a person who is blessed to wage war of that person. This is because the unblessed smells the presence of blessing somewhere, and that smell 
reminds him of the curse that he is now carrying because someone was not there to bless him. Which is the reason why when we talk about elders having the capacity to bless, we ought to understand that the term cannot be taken lightly. Because when this job is not done, it does not leave just an empty spot in the psyche of the person. It creates a chemical situation because the person has, or each one of us have within ourselves a space where blessing is supposed to sit. To sit there like a, like a car engine alternator, the part that gives the, that gives the energy, oh, there's, there's, there's the electricity to, to make the engine run. And when the blessing does not come to be installed in there, what happens is that the entire engine, for lack of proper operation, be, begins to rot. This is what I like to refer to as a, a kind of chemi- a, a chemical reaction. Because beyond a certain point where blessing is needed, then something else kicks in, and it becomes a counter-motor. In the village, the reason why initiation happens uh, during the adolescence is simply because at that age kicks in a certain... uh, It's like uh, the bell goes off. It's like an alarm clock that goes off. And at that time, if the elders are not there to put the, the adolescent through this ritual experience uh, called initiation, incidentally, because in the village it's called remembering. What happened is that the blessing cannot be given properly. You can't bless somebody who's running around wild. You have to put that person through initiation because that's how the blessing is given by the elders. And so... I think there's a chain reaction behind this that uh, makes all of us caught up in the whirlwind caused by the absence of blessing. Because what I call betrayal or uh, hostility, whether it is given or returned, all of these are directly linked to 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 the absence of this major thing that we call blessing. It feels to me that in the absence of blessing, too, there is no maturation. You don't grow up. If you're not blessed, you can't grow up. So the implications are almost unbearable if you want to look at it from a large scale. Look at Africa today, for instance. What is called nowadays modern Africa is ruled by people who, just like me, were taken away from their families brought to the school of the white man, systematically brainwashed, and how to conduct leadership following the white man's model. So those we call bourgeois comprador and the valet of neocolonialism in Africa are those people who were brought up in this particular ways in the, in the high institution at Oxford or the Sorbonne, and who are now back home to actually try to uphold the values of the West right at home. It was strictly a tribal system. Uh, the French people found out when they came among the Dagara that there's no, there's no uh, hierarchical, uh, the power is not hierarchical. The first thing they asked in the tribe is, where's the chief? And uh, people respond, we don't have chiefs here, we have priests. 
people who are in service of keeping the relationship between the tribe and the other world sane. But they are not chief, because this is not the kind of job that you will, you will petition for. You... And so they reported that, uh, I mean, it was the most primitive of primitive organization, because they still don't know the importance of having a chief. What I'm trying to say here is that uh, there's a certain mindset, which to me, I feel, may be coming from a very old, old curse that has led to a perverse, creative road leading to the creation of a certain hierarchy, whether you call it communism or democracy or this or that, as long as it creates power-hungry people of perverse modern tribalism, which, in fact, carry the name corporation, if you wish. Uh, uh, it is still informed by something within that, in fact, is yearning for some kind of blessing. And as long as that is not there, the creative resources are going to go around the building of external power, a power that intimidates, a power that frightens the other. How that power is expressed in third world and how it is being successful is essentially through the intimidation process as well as the terrorizing. And the worst of it all is the hunger. I lived the first eight years in this country with just one meal, simply, I could, simply because I could not believe that there is so much food here. I had gotten used to the one meal a day like everybody else in the village, and I could not believe that I could have access to three. It's only two and a half years ago when my wife arrived here that she said, this is insane, uh, let's add another meal. So we decided to have lunch and dinner, but we still can't get it down straight to have the, the three-fold meal because there's something inside that say, well, uh, there's a problem here. And so what, is, what happened in the third world is that the, this, this dispensation imposes itself by starving other people. If you want to debilitate somebody, take the food away from his desk. This is why in Africa today, uh, if you read the literature, the, uh, I mean, modern, modern African literature that are really, that, it's, that literature that is called Afrocentric, there's a lot of food themes in the stories. Everything turned around food. Where is your next meal going to come from? In this kind of context, it's very difficult to stay focused within spirit. And in this kind of context, it's very hard to maintain a link between elders and the young ones, which is the reason why modern African cities are now being flooded by youth running away from initiation, running away from the elders, not because they hate them necessarily, but because there's no food in the village. They go to the city simply because in the city there is an external translation of the presence of food support. What they don't realize is that that food is kept in abundance in certain dinner table and left absent in others, many, many others. The first time I came into this country, I started out the first day by eating out of trash. That was in New York City. 
because I got here and the first thing that happened is that everything I had was stolen. And after a long time without food, I started looking into garbage cans until I figured out a way to use a telephone. So what I'm trying to say, we were confused that is, is that when we're talking about hostility, we're talking about uh, this particular type of energy that is experienced by the other as antagonizing or antagonistic. We have to go beyond the other person just being the enemy to that person needing healing, to that person being sick. Most of the time in the, in the soul of the unblessed, there is a need to, and a pull towards negotiating blessing from somebody who already has it. And what happened is that that negotiation it does not come articulated in kind terms. It always comes in the form of a certain form of violence. And I would say that uh, the, the people who have most been pressured by that are the minorities. Of course, people tend to see blessing as meaning prosperity. You've got to disconnect these two things. Uh, blessing does not necessarily mean prosperity with a lot of food, a lot of this and that. Blessing is a state of the soul. Blessing is a place in which the, the person's psyche sits in comfort. And you cannot de deploy blessing by creating glamour or uh, all these external power. In fact, that means the absence of it. My grandfather used to say that beauty brought outside is a lie. And that beauty kept inside is power in the state of growing. It's power that is growing constantly. And the first time uh, one of the elders I took to the city, the first time he saw a, a, a multi-story building, he wasn't worried about the building. He was worried about who built it. He said, whoever did this has got a problem. <laughs> I think that in a culture that has lost the beauty of the state of blessing, that culture began to express uh, itself externally or to boast in one way or another in some intimidating way or another. And for a lot of reason, I can see the high rises downtown as a signal that the ones behind that are desperately trying to send out a signal somewhere. They probably don't even know where the source is in order to receive the healing that blessing comes along with Modernity has perverted tribal uh, spiritual practices and turned them into very, very confusing things for, the ver for even the, the people caught in the middle of it. The birth of what is called uh, talisman in, uh, in my tribe started with a confusion that French culture brought into the village. Elders found out that See, when hostility is directed at you, <coughs> responding to hostility the same way as the hostile person is actually feeding the very energy that has trapped the hostile person. And it means, therefore, that this response cancels out the very blessing that you had received. Let me put it another way. The best fight against a person that hates you is not to hate the person back but it is to create a medicine that would cancel out the energy of hatred directed at you. 
This is where the whole idea of talisman comes from. And this is where the whole idea of creating shrines and working with the symbols and metaphors that you put in that shrine, the four. It always begins with the understanding of the very vibration that the person is, uh, is experiencing. Because hatred is an energy that is independent of the person experiencing it. It's something that enters you, takes you over, and you become a full servant of it. So talismans, the birth of talisman, come from an understanding that to any energy, you can oppose another energy. And at the energetic level, there is a natural understanding. So someone who is caught in the whirlwind of, uh, uh, of hatred or hostility, that person can wake up one morning not remembering anymore that he was feeling what he felt before but realizing that there was another person inside of him, and therefore that's not him. See, This is a task, I believe, of those people who are caught on the other side of this dynamic, those who are supposed to be the receptacle of this kind of energy. I'm not even talking about the hostile self within, because that hostile self is also another intruder. It's a... It's a self having a beginning to respond to an energy that is outside. And that means somehow that the cultural cloak within which we're all, we're all living our life sends in all kinds of signals that our psyche is very, very sensitive to and can respond to it in so many different ways. And yet, because of the, the, uh, the magnetism to visibility that we're all caught in, that is to say, what we see is what is. Your actions determines who you are. We end up intensifying that negative energy without knowing that, in fact, it is making all of us victims. This may be too complicated, but let me, let me bring in some examples. See, this, uh, this is a skin. <laughs> uh, this is skin inside of which something you're never going to know is, is hiding. All I need to do is put it around myself when I'm experiencing something that I don't know the source of. What it does in this lump, in the, in the lump side, is just pick up the very thing that my consciousness doesn't know how to articulate yet. I start, I, I go to places, and all of a sudden my body starts feeling weird. I start feeling strange. This is going to create like a magnetic space, a magnetic uh, center, attracting that energy. And once it gets in, it records it and traps it. I don't need to know what that energy is. I just need it away from me. So once I go home, there are certain things I need to do in order to release it. When the elders made this for me, that was my, after my second, my second trip uh, home, they say that I had become in the West like a huge receptacle, and too many things were pouring into it, and that I needed to sort things out. And I thought that sorting things out meaning, mean, uh, meant knowing them ahead of time, evaluating them, you know, that's the normal Western way, uh, evaluating them, deciding of their quality, and therefore whether they should be dismissed or, or held on to. They meant totally something else. For them, there is another consciousness within, within us, that has the power to do these things without my, uh, the consciousness having any involvement with it. Because if you want to involve your consciousness with it, it takes too much time. It takes too much, of, uh, too much energy. 
All you need to do is respond to the impulse of the soul that wants you to go here, to go there, to do this and to do that. But what happens is that when the soul is being interfered with, then at that time your identity begins to shift. Because the shift of identity is not something that can happen outward, outside. Your consciousness has a natural power to resist it. But there are other places where you have no resistance. Any signal that, that reaches that place, you will respond to it naturally. I've tested that out in the course of my 12 years of college studies. I've been on scholarship all that time. The only way I was able to get the scholarship was to talk to the person having the power to give scholarship directly in that place. And I realized whether he's white or black or yellow, they respond the same thing, the same way. Some people have said that this is cheating. Hell was cheating. The point is you got to go across. And if you talk to a person who is already prejudiced against you, asking that person for something, well, you're just making a fool of yourself. Talk to the other person, the other person inside who is not as hostile as the person outside. And you find out that there, these two people, that is say the you within and the him within, they know each other much better than the outward person. This led me to the understanding that, uh, see, all these things that we turn, uh, we give a word to that seem to be always related to the outside situation, must be primarily interpreted energetically. That is to say, as waves of, of, of energy that we are responding to, just like a, a, a radio receptor only responds to waves. And we, too, in the same way, are built in such a way that something in us makes us respond. And so if we can figure out ways to interfere with some, some of those waves, then we will we will cook up an identity for us that is more connected with the ancestors and less of a response to somebody who is actually cursed. This is why, for me, it feels that uh, the only way uh, those of you who are awakening to an, alter an alternative ways of living have to begin that, uh, that life by bestowing a new approach to what spirituality is about. The best political stance you can take is spiritual. Let me substantiate this. The reason for that is because what you are doing working with spirit is actually something that you, you give spirit the power to realize out there in the world for you, rather than you going frontal against a force that is already intimidating and overpowering. I had to come here to this culture to understand the power of hiddenness. Why so much power that I was able to see among my elders in other villages and in other tribes were kept so hidden, when in fact, if that was brought out, a good marketing plan will make these people billionaires. I mean, really, literally. And yet, this, this simple idea of actually uh, thinking about selling it or making it known disempowers the very thing you have. This is because real power does not like to be advertised. Real power does not like to be, to be shown around. A person who's showing power around is actually telling you that he is losing it. 
that's, that's one of the reasons why I came to understand when the elders, after my own initiation, told me that, you see, a lot of us, a lot of the tribes are joining the white man's way. But at the same time, a lot of, a lot of people in the white man's culture are born vibrating the very energy that we here in the village are vibrating. They need to be told how to be familiar with that energy because outside there's a lot of darkness. And that's what made me respond strongly to Bill Stafford's poem when he said the darkness around is, is deep. Anyone who is aware that the darkness around is deep is a person who has been sent to the heart of this culture in order to become a positive virus that is going to, to be effective by staying hidden. When I first arrived here, I had no idea what I was getting myself involved with. <laughs> well, I probably still, still don't have much idea what I'm getting myself involved with, but it was more acute at that time. All I knew was that I had brothers in this culture who had been brought here against their will, and that perhaps within their soul was still a, some, some kind of longing for the kind of home that has become strange to me. And that perhaps by joining our longing together, we could create a better sense of home. I quickly realized that it was not just these brothers in black color, but that it was a whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of people caught in the turmoil of modernity, thinking like village people or feeling like village people. This is what led me to understand the meaning of my name, be friend with a stranger. That friendship has nothing to do with those people caught in the darkness of the corporate world. I don't want to be friends with these strangers. But that friendship has to do with those who are awake in the middle of the night of modernity. Because one person awake is very lonely. A couple of people awake is less so. This is why I always feel at home when I find myself in a setting like this with this, these kind of people. Whether you feel yourself spiritual or not, it doesn't matter. We all come here to remember and to figure out a way to build around us a healing shield against the hostility of the world out there. This is not the kind of thing that can be done uh, one, once and for all. It has to become a way of life. It has to become a way of defining your own identity. It is not a quick fix. And I believe that uh, the best way that this can happen will have to be within the context of what I've called ritual, because ritual generates healings, and healing in turn produces community. You can't start by nailing down the definition of community before you do it. This is following the modern way. You have to start somewhere else. Then we have to learn not only to resurrect a tradition of building altars, gateways, talisman, but learn to enter into a constant ritual space alone or with each other in order to develop as a positive virus right in the heart of modernity so that by the time the forces out there are aware of it, they don't even know where the enemy is. They don't even know where he hit because it's all over the place. See? The modern world is, is accustomed to one thing, hierarchy. Whenever they're aware that there's something threatening, they start to look for the head. Where's the top side? Let's knock that off and everything else goes down the tube. 
I think that the best, the best defensive or offensive happen within the state of invisibility. And the way we can become effective for one another is to share the feeling of those who are doing underground work. Because the gods are underground. And the only way we can make the world above better is to go down to the underground and listen to those gods in there. As I was saying the other day, the indigenous world is not going to survive. It is not going to restore itself. We are it. And my hope is to see that before that indigenous world completely dies, that there are signs of its resurrecting in the heart and souls of people like you right here. The wisest elders that I have heard from in the Dogon culture, in the Moshi culture, and the Dagara culture in my country have all said this. Relationship with spirits has no nationality. The world is a country for all of us. The Dogons have always seen, because they're so powerful in astronomy, uh, they've always seen that it won't be long before this crap of different nations stop. Before the what? Before the crap of different nations uh, stop existing. And that we find ourselves as citizens of the country called Earth. They have always seen something about people coming from other places, from other earth. Mm -hmm. People who have already made their own earth a one country. So when I find myself uh, facing up against e immigration where they refer to me as alien, <laughs> I, I say to myself, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yeah immigration people say that I'm an alien. And so it feels to me that um, it is in the context of, therefore, the practice of ritual that we can perhaps accelerate the resurrection of that dying indigenous dispensation out there. It's like uh, perhaps one of, the, one of the most effective strategic initiative to save the world as to allow the indigenous to be born downtown. And each one of you, I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing that I've come to understand. Each one of you in this context look like, yes, indeed, any one of those elders or uh, indigenous person in the village who at one time or another, in one life or another, has become victim of the sweeping influence of colonialism and imperialism. And if there were a wave to try to tap into that part of yourself that remembers, that knew that somehow uh, in the past there were certain things you used to do, things the memory of which you've brought back here, which is the reason why you're not interested necessarily in the, in the culture of the mall, uh, uh, in the culture of, I don't know, the Monday night football or something of that sort, but in something that feels grander, even though you don't have a way of defining it then it will feel to me you're heading towards the right direction. And the right direction is a simple acknowledgement of your being a marginal person. We didn't come into this wood to reaffirm the fact that we are American. <laughs> no. I mean, fuck America. Uh, what? <laughs> we came here to be true to ourselves. When the elders say that a person who is not initiated remains a child, 
I didn't understand it until I came to this culture. And I realized that the turmoil, the fermentation going on in this culture is symptomatic of an adolescent culture. There is a primal energy in the, among the Dagara called uh, fire energy. And when an adolescent kicks, uh, uh, the adolescent hormones kicks in at the time prior to initiation, they say this boy needs to be, to, uh, to be allowed to remember or he's going to return to his origin. That is to say, the origin is associated with fire. It's a state of combustion. My feeling is that the core of modernity has to do with this frenetic pull towards the origin, towards fire. Otherwise, why, would, why all these warheads, uh, why all these nuclear warheads, all these pollutions, all, I mean, it's amazing. Everything symptomatic of the adolescent vibration. That is to say, the kind of vibration that elders interpret as a request for an initiation. If a culture is able to, in, to wait to raise billions of dollars to send weapons uh, to the desert and wipe up a couple hundred thousand people and have nothing to say about it. And later on, jump into some, some kind of operation, restore hope. When in fact, restore hope for who? You realize that in fact, military has, is a directly a response to an adolescent energy. And the best way it can work is to keep the soldier and initiate it. Because that energy that makes the adolescent unbearable is still there. Some of them just wake up too early and, it's, and uh, they start making trouble. But uh, basically, the general, the general consensus is keep the person an adolescent and he will act militaristically. So it feels to me that indeed uh, for, a, for a culture such as this to be calling itself the, the bastion of the free world. <laughs> you wonder what kind of freedom you're talking about. When I see all the death that occurs in Africa, not because people want to be like the modern person, but because most of what they want is just, a, it's just one meal a day. <laughs> and you see the amount of waste that happened on the other side. That's what tells me that no, a wasteful culture like this has no right to claim itself the head of the free world. This is not freedom. Well, I can go on and on forever. It, the more I speak about it, the more I just find myself like melting into some pieces. I think that this is the kind of thing that we must come here concerned about. We can't come here simply because you know, we have reached a middle class status. Therefore, automatically qualify you know, to, uh, to go to the wood and sit there and do something slightly different from what we do normally. We have to come here because we are worried. We have to come here also because we're seeking a new sense of home, a place where grandchildren can be reconnected with grandfathers, a place where adolescents can be allowed to remember, and finally, a place where we can call community. And so every moment that we spend in places like this must be a moment of intense involvement with healing and with remembering. Michael Mead says that 
to have made it up to this age means that you've gone through some kind of initiation. I would say that probably you've, if you've made it here because you've gone through a gauntlet. A gauntlet. So in Africa, they have this thing where uh, you walk through an alley of people where they beat the shit out of you. Uh, uh. And so if you've arrived here, it's because you still feel the pain of going through the gauntlet. And it's because you don't want to start another gauntlet. And so in that context, see, I don't feel any different from you. Of course, I went through initiation, but initiation helped me to remember why my grandfather was calling me Malidama. And immediately it triggered that which led me to being here. I wanted to be in the village, but that's because I wasn't seeing what was going on. And after having been away for 16 years and returning and just finally learning to speak my native language again, to be asked to leave was a very painful thing. But I realized that uh, a lot of you, even though you can still look outside and see a geography that is familiar to you, a lot of you were born in exile. You were born taken away from your home. And I think that probably part of the reason why we're here is so that we can find the path back to that home, the exact place of which we don't know. So what is important is not so much arriving at home as it is the going. So if we can at least admit the fact that we are, we are a caravan, <laughs> like these elephants bite each other's tail. And, <laughs> you know, if we can accept that, the sense of home begins right there. It begins right at the moment when we know that we are a caravan heading somewhere home. So this is the kind of thing that I would like to, uh, uh, I wanted to humbly bring to your attention and alert at least yourself to the fact that uh, the more we stay away from pure celebration, from pure rhetoric, the more we allow greater space for our heart and our soul to speak because that's where our memory box is sitting. Mm-hmm. Could you say a few words about betrayal? Betrayal is always looked at in, from two directions. Uh, like I say, the, the betrayer is the person who has seen in the betrayed something that looks like a blessing. The betrayed is the person who is being asked to return blessing, to share blessing. It is unbearable to live in the same geography for two people, one blessed and another unblessed, to live in the same geography. And so, once you are blessed, the soul of the person who is not blessed sees you as his potential savior. And it is the only thing that by birthright we are entitled to. Which is the reason why the, the, betrayed, the betrayer will, will do his job to awake you. So envy and that feeling are related then. Oh, envy are inside that. They're encapsulated in it. So basically, it's not an e- the betrayer is not necessarily to be seen as an evildoer. Mm-hmm. He's deliberately trying to reach out. He's deliberately trying to articulate what is missing in him. And so a person who is betrayed must, more often than not, take that as a blessing. Why? Because it tells you that you are blessed in some ways that the other who is betraying you is not. The true healing that I'm talking about 
comes from here. Of course, we see things in each other that we as individuals don't always necessarily see in us. Because we're too much in the middle of ourselves, there are lots of things we are not directly, uh, we haven't locked on visually. Other people can see that. And so the betrayer always sees a dimension in you that is so blessed and that is wanted. So he'd walk you up and say, why do you hold on to this? Give it to me or share it with me. Because there's always another place in us that is in some ways seeking another type of blessing. That part is more or less likely to respond to betrayal by returning hostility. And that's when we just fuck the whole thing up. See? You know, there are many young men who feel very unblessed by older men. Yes. And they feel uh, very uh, envious of those uh, who are in working like this. Uh -huh. And there are many young women who have been violated sexually, and they feel very much envious of this. That's right. What, what is the proper way to treat that, uh, that anger in which is enclosed envy? One of the first things that I can say in response to that is the opening of a ritual space and introducing a person into a ritual space in such a way that that person is able to descend to that, to that place where envy sits and is broadcasting from or to that place where hatred is articulated or is alive. When the person descends to that place, it means that the person is open. For, for just a while, the person's uh, brain or, or thinking patterns are dismissed. And so what you're dealing with is almost a, a pure soul. It's very easy at that time to, to push that energy out. This is what we call in the village doing a radical ritual. A radical ritual is intended to actually separate the person from a vibrational center that is manipulating that person. It could come in the form of envy, uh, hatred, of uh, this kind of repeat, repeated betrayal pattern. And in that case, it means that the person is now reconciled with himself. So he's seeking in others those parts that he thinks is going to help make him full. So in a context of reconciliation, what is needed is water. So you live in a cold country. The water is always fucked up, very cold. Oh. Oh, oh. And so this is a great opportunity to come up with radical ritual. Radical ritual means a, a, a time of, no, first, after you make the invocation, you move the person into a context in which he will experience the physical translation of the very energy you're seeking so that he can be shocked. And, what, and when he's shocked, you bring that person into a nurturing circle where people can touch him, sing to him, tell him how great he is, how beautiful he is, and so forth. In that space, he bursts into tears. That's because he remembers. Yeah. But what about the women, let's say, that we don't know mm -hmm. that are feeling all this anguish? Uh, of being unblessed uh, by the perpetrators and by the people who uh, violated them. How can we reach out to them in a way that's appropriate? Reach, reach out to the women. Yeah, the angry, really angry, unblessed women. You see, that we as men cannot take that initiative. Women as women must take that initiative before we can meet in a circle of equality. Which initiative? Uh, the initiative of radical ritual healing. If they don't do that, we can be as healed as hell. We're still going to create the same, the same energy on the other side. 
just as there are male elders and male initiate, there's also female elders and female initiate capable of helping facilitate mm -hmm. the this kind of transformation. It is important that there be something that women can benefit from before both women and men can come together. Otherwise, it will be, be seen primarily as a man thing, being ex extended kindly to women. Yeah. Yeah. Women who are healed, meeting men who are healed, they don't have a problem with difference. Simply because it's like two glasses that are full. Why would one glass want, want what the other glass has? They're all full, you see. And so I don't think that we as men can help women heal. Women must heal themselves. We must be busy trying to heal ourselves. Once in a while, at least, what could happen are he, men and women agitating the energy about the necessity of this healing to happen. It's like men and women coming together to get worried about the necessity of doing that healing. You know. Because otherwise, you know, men and women will be throwing, uh, throwing stone at each other. They'll be angry at each other. And you see, with this tradition of patriarchy, uh, the women are going to be coming from a position of the, complaint, uh, the complainer who has all kind of history to back her up yeah. about male tyranny, yeah. uh, the victim. And when this kind of energy is generated, there's no communication that can happen. Are you going to say, I'm sorry? It doesn't work, you see. And so I think that concerned people, I mean, mature male and female coming together must create a language that is extremely uh, troublesome mm. about this idea mm. so that when they part, the women go their way to try and get something going and the men also go their way to try and get something going. This is a context in which men and women coming together can actually work. Otherwise, it's going to be a competition. Uh, somebody's going to be complaining about the other person being this instead of that, and so on and so forth. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. I think another thing that men can do to help, help women that are, that are hurt, uh, have been hurt by men, is uh, to absolutely draw a line and be determined not to take advantage of it. Take advantage of it. Right. Because I think the hostile brother likes to suck on their wounds. And if, you, if, if I stay with myself and keep him in check, I do a world of good for them. I don't need to reach over and try to heal them from an all-knowing position. I just need to not take advantage of their, of their, uh, their weakened stance. Uh, could, you, uh, could you address something about the hostile brother with regard to this kind of uh, interplay? What I hear you saying is that the way we respond to hostility should not be also hostility. But I'm a little confused about the hostile brother inside. Okay, yeah, if you're talking about the, the, that hostile brother inside, what you must know is that that hostile brother is tied to the dispensation out there. That is to say, the system out there. That hostile brother is realizing an ancient self in you that is waking up. He won't like that. He won't like that. It is the one that is creating that, this conflict because if 
that ancient self in you has to come out, it means the dilution of this hostility. You have to use that hostility as a reminder that there is a pearl that is coming up. Not, not use that hostility as something that you must crush. Because if you crush it, you're going to forget the good that, you, that the hostel was reminding you of. By the time this, this total indigenous energy surges out in you, there's, no, there's going to be no more hostility. There won't be any left. Because it would take, take over the place. And the hostel is going to merge with the positive, the loving one. And so, the, one of the ways at least to look at the, the hostility inside, this kind of splitness and division, is to think in terms of the task, the kind of journey we're doing. That, that splitness is the signal that something good is coming out of you. And so, in a lot of ways, that hostile one must be embraced because its presence is a strong reminder that there is something good coming out. See? Thank well, you, Melodon. Oh, thank much. you.